Welcome to Wholehearted Wednesday. Today I'm going to be interviewing Gavin Hamnett, who works as a counselor, therapist, and has a lot of experience dealing with addictions. Hear him talk about the nature of the self, the nature of healing, and why he believes that people deep down can really heal from any kind of trauma. It's a great interview. Hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Wholehearted Wednesday. I'm David Young, and today we're here with Gavin Hamnett. Gavin is a psychotherapist and a counselor and also a friend. And I just want to say thank you for being here today, Gavin. Yeah, you're welcome. It's good to be here. Is there anything else that you'd like us to know about you before we get started? Well, I'm a counselor, a psychotherapist. I currently work at an outpatient program in Hudson, New York, living in Barrytown, sitting here on our deck in a beautiful pre-fall day, and married with one daughter, been living in the United States since I was 19 years old, born in Scotland. Oh, wow. What brought you to the States from Scotland? Uh, I came on an exchange program, student exchange program, and ended up really liking it here. Went back, finished an undergraduate degree, and then came back, got married, and stayed. Wow, okay. In the United States. Oh. It was illegal for, I think, a year and a half or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, so how did you end up getting into psychotherapy and counseling? Is this something that you, that you knew that you wanted to do even then? Well, it's interesting. My father was always very psychologically oriented. I would talk about Freud and psychological ideas when I was a kid growing up. I ended up going to medical school, I think because I had a genuine inclination to be in healing. Hmm. Uh, I dropped out of medical school for many reasons, but in part because I felt that I wasn't wired to be a medical doctor. And when I got married with my wife, this was in 1982, we both had some counseling, which was very good. Hmm. We had both been in a spiritual community, and I had a very powerful experience of being mentored by different people and, and to some extent counseled in that spiritual community. And I sort of felt the power sort of the, of the spoken word hmm. and the power of good mentoring and good counseling. And so that sort of initiated some desire and interest in the counseling field and psychotherapy field. And probably the first book that somebody gave me to read back in probably 19, I forget, 1981 was The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck. Yeah, yeah. Which really struck, I rarely read a book in a couple of days, but I, I finished that book in a couple of days. Hmm. And there were interesting insights in every paragraph just about. And it just spoke to me in a very human way. Wow. You know? Yeah, that's a great book. Yeah. And so did you just never turn back after that? Was your journey kind of straight through into counseling and psychotherapy or did you kind of meander a bit? Well, it was a long journey before I ended up working eventually as an addictions counselor, which was about 15 years ago. And I finally gained the confidence and the skills to know that I could really function well as a counselor or psychotherapist. And that took a long time. Mm. I originally did a master's degree in counseling and graduated from that back in 1997. Mm. And yeah, there was a lot of, I had to go through a lot of things before I built up the confidence and the skills and I got training in different ways outside of the, mas the master's degree that I did. 
that sort of I felt like I finally arrived. And then we were living in Ithaca, New York, and I had a small business and I was getting older and I thought, I've really got to get into this. And I completed the master's degree some years before, went online and I found that a inpatient addiction program had just opened up nearby and they are having an open hiring day. Mm. So I went to the hiring day and got a call three days later saying they'd hire me as an addictions counselor. Wow. So that's sort of how I got started with actually working in some kind of counseling or therapy field. Thank you. What are the kind of things that you run into in your work? What are the kind of situations? Well, I started working in addictions. And of course, there I was working with people who had quite long histories of addiction, but also long histories of all kinds of emotional and psychological wounding. A lot of it in childhood, some later in life. And I'm just giving you a little bit of the history. And I had done a, a you know, pretty generic master's degree, which didn't give me a lot of skill. And I thought and realized I've got to get more skill. I've got to get some more training. Mm-hmm. And I knew that training wasn't going and sitting down in a lecture or listening to someone talk nonstop for eight hours. But the training was really learning skills mm. in an in a, in a experiential program. So I asked different people I knew, and three people concurred that I should go study Hakomi, H-A-K-O-M-I. I forget how long ago that was. That was probably about, again, about 15, 12 years ago, 12 to 15 years ago. And I went through that program, and I got some really good skills. Although I realized in hindsight, it took me much longer than that to really start to understand that, that approach and method. Hmm. And then one thing I realized pretty fast working with people with severe addiction that all those people had major trauma. And probably about 15 years ago, trauma was increasingly being in the news, especially to do with PTSD from people coming back from Gulf Wars and so on. And then there was also a lot in the news simply about the development of methods to help people with trauma. Mm. And I thought I should get some training in trauma resolution work. And I looked at a few different methods. In fact, I looked at probably the main methods. Main methods out there are sort of EMDR, sensory mm-hmm. experiencing, sensory motor. Could you talk more about or say what EMDR is for, for our audience? EMDR was created by a, a woman. I've forgotten her name. And she was walking one day. This is the anecdotal story. Mm-hmm. She was walking in nature one day. And she noticed, she was noticing, I believe she was noticing things in nature around her and her eyes were moving backwards and forwards, checking out the nature that she saw. And she started having some neurobiological experience within her. Anyway, that was the seed for the development of her method, which called EMDR, which is eye motor desensitive. Oh, you know, I can't tell you what it stands for, (laughs) but you can look it up. And I, I, I saw a therapist for some sessions, just dealing with my own personal issues. It didn't work very well for me. Uh, sensory experiencing was created by a man called Peter Levine. Mm. And he's sort of considered the father, the founding father of trauma resolution work. And I had some sensory experiencing sessions and I wasn't that impressed. 
the sensory motor, which was created by a woman called Pat Ogden, mm. who was one of the founders of Hakomi. Mm. I don't think I had any sensory motor sessions, but I took a look at that. I consulted with a friend of mine who is a longtime therapist and psychologist, you know, with a PhD in psychology. He's worked for many, many years in trauma work. And I asked him what he thought about, you know, contemporary trauma methods. And he said he wasn't that impressed. Wow. And so that set me about looking for something that might be more powerful and better. And I came across CRM, which is Comprehensive Resource Method or Model. And I went to a training at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, and was very impressed by the method and by the founder, a woman called Lisa Schwartz. Mm. And then I looked for a therapist in this area and started working with a therapist you know, from, on my own issues and was very uh, taken by the method. Wow. And I've been using that method for the past three and a half or so years. Wow. So you've kind of combined all these different methods together now, or is, would you say you... Yeah, they're, they're coming together for me. I feel I have approaches, or the other approach I had a message was, is the recreation of the self method, which was created by a man called John Eisman, who was also a founder of the Kokomi method. But okay. then he created this method, which is sort of an offshoot of Hakomi, but is very affirming of the idea of an essential self. It's innate, it's whole, it's always there, it always has been. And that emotional wounding separates people from their experience of that essential self. Uh, and is that opposed to having like a core wounded self? It's a different philosophy, I guess, of the self is what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's a different model of the self. And I would say... RCS, recreation of the self, is explicit in that it believes or proposes that, yeah, that the core self is not innately wounded, that there's a core self that's innately whole. I would say that comprehensive resource model also is of that kind of nature, it has that kind of philosophical idea as a basic idea. Do you think that's different from the mainstream or popular idea? When people think of therapy or healing or traditional, I guess, what is it, CBT therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, is what's, how are they different? Well, that? for example, cognitive behavioral therapy would say there's a dysfunction in your thinking and they wouldn't even speculate about some core wounding. And that's just oh, like traditional talk therapy? Well, cognitive behavioral is a specific method of, of helping somebody sort out the logic of their thinking. Mm. When you say traditional talk therapy, that could be coming... A person who's doing traditional talk therapy could come from all different perspectives, many different perspectives. But I think there is a prevalent notion in psychology and probably in the culture that, oh, my core self is wounded. Mm. And I tend to think that's not the case or it's not nearly as much the case as people tend to feel. Mm. Wow. So I'm, I guess I'm curious now, like what are... What are some of the other misconceptions that people have about healing in general when they come to you or that they end up walking around with? Well, again, I think the basic misconception is that I'm fundamentally wounded or there's something fundamentally pathological about me. Hmm. Pathological in the sense, the medical model, that I have something fundamentally wrong with me. But I would say that that comes from, for example, when there's trauma wounding, then people feel there's something fundamentally wrong with themselves, but that's because of the dynamics that they experience in the trauma that they go through. Mm. Could you say more about that? 
Well, the comprehensive resource model is based partly on the trauma model of a psychotherapist, psychiatrist called Colin Ross. Okay. And another interesting person to look at who has YouTubes, as Colin Ross does also, is an English therapist and scholar called Lucy Johnson. Hmm. Both of them would say people went through major traumatic events in their life that shaped their perception of themselves. Hmm. And if when you're very, very young, and Colin Ross talks about this a lot in his model, that when you experience trauma in relationship, especially with your parents, then you're in a, in a, a bind. I don't know if I can explain this clearly or not, but in other words, the very people who are in a sense perpetrating on you as a child are the people you need the most. Oh, so you develop like an attachment to the perpetrator. So like you both love your parent, but you also don't feel safe around them, but you need to bond them at the same time. And so That's you- right. Yeah, you explained that better than I did. And then there's what Colin Ross calls a locus of control shift. The people who are responsible are your parents. You're not responsible when you're one, two, three years old for your life. What's mm. happening in your life, your parents are responsible. But then there's a locus of control shift where you take on a sense of responsibility at a very young age for what's happened to you and you feel, it's my fault. Hmm. Is that where that false sense of self or the wounded self comes from? That's part of it. I mean, you set off feeling like, you know, when you're a young child, you feel you are the creator of the world. You have an innate, natural sense that you are the creator of your world. Hmm. And so if bad things are happening, you tend to assume that, oh, I'm responsible for what's happening. And again, if it's actually your parents who are responsible for bad things in your life, you cannot afford to believe that they are responsible for the bad things that are happening in your life because you want to really see them as the source of goodness in your life. Mm. Wow, interesting. Is it even possible? How, I mean, it's kind of amazing to hear some clarity around how trauma and pathology develop, but is it like, do you think it's possible then to heal from that? I mean, I guess obviously you do because that's your, your work. But is yeah, it I do. I do believe that. Yeah. I mean, I think that the various trauma resolution methods started emerging 15 to 20 years ago and all of them say or posit that it's possible to resolve deep trauma. And yes, I believe it is. Mm. Is this like a lifelong process or I guess I'm wondering, does it have to take a long time? I don't think it's interesting. Also, the methods that are emerging are the methods say or propose that no, it doesn't have to take 15, 20 years. You mm. know, T- traditionally, you'd, you would often hear of or meet people who'd been in Freudian sort of psychotherapy for 15, many, many, many years and hadn't necessarily resolved a lot of their deepest trauma. Hmm. Could you classify trauma too? Because I'm wondering for the listeners, sometimes we think of trauma and we think of, well, like PTSD or... Yeah. Well, I think... From what you're saying, it sounds like that a lot of things actually can fall into the category of trauma that we wouldn't normally think of as as trauma. Well, my understanding is from a sort of neurobiological point of view, trauma is life-threatening, existence-threatening events and circumstances that lead to an activation of your autonomic nervous system. And that the end result is that that autonomic nervous system, that the trauma is then lodged in a looping within your autonomic nervous system in fight, flight, freeze, submit responses. And those don't necessarily have to be genuine 
like physically life-threatening events? It doesn't have to be physically life-threatening. No, it could be an experience. I mean, you could be abandoned emotionally and feel like I'm dying here and feel the threat of psychic death, that, that my life is over. Wow. When you're one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old. Hmm. Wow. This is really fascinating. I'm, I'm kind of curious, what are some of the key elements necessary to heal, like to resolve trauma? I'm only really familiar with the comprehensive resource model, and it would say, let's get parallel levels of positive neurobiological stuff happening in your system. CRM talks about a nesting, like Russian dolls, levels or a framework, a scaffolding of positive neurobiological stuff, neurochemical stuff happening in your nervous system, in your mind, brain, body, which then makes it safe for you to step into the unbearable feelings you had at the time, split second of the trauma, and then experience it differently than when it happened 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Wow. And that you're having a different experience and you can then digest what happened. You can metabolize or digest what happened. Again, I'm just sharing from my own understanding and perception. It may not be quite accurate. Got it. Well, I remember doing a few of these sessions with you and it was almost mm -hmm. like I relived moments, but almost like in how they, not necessarily how I wanted them to happen, but it almost felt like it was, they happened in a healing way. Like I re-experienced moments with yeah. my parents, I re-experienced moments from my past. It was amazing actually. To, to, oh, good. I didn't good. even know that was possible. Yeah. Yeah. When we're young and we're not resourced, the sort of psychological term is resource. We don't have the positive resourcing going on, support and so on then somebody with very little resourcing or it's a highly traumatic event, they cannot digest or metabolize what's happening. The metaphor is that I'm using is digestion or metabolism. I metabolizing. see. Like, like at the time you're too young, you don't have the knowledge of like, when you say resourcing, do you mean like knowing that you're loved or knowing that it's safe or even like the intellectual resources? Like when you Yeah, I think a whole many, many levels of resourcing you just don't have. Mm. So it just kind of overwhelms you emotionally? Yeah. Right? yeah. And the very fact that you're experiencing trauma indicates that there's something really missing mm. and that something bad is happening to you. Wow. How is unconditional love a part of that healing process? Mm. You know, in terms of psychotherapy, the therapist is hopefully showing up in a very present way and in a way that's pretty unconditional without any kind of judgments on the person and that the person has a an experience of an unconditional presence. You know, that's a factor that it sets the stage for healing to happen. I don't think simply the experience of having someone around you who's unconditional is going to in itself bring about a resolution of that trauma. Mm. You're saying it takes a bit more than just a person who's unconditionally loving, it takes a bit more than that as well. Yeah, I think being around someone who's unconditionally loving is going to heal, heal other types of emotional wounding. Mm. Attachment wounding. John Eisman talks a lot about fragmentation of consciousness. And I think the presence of an unconditional person is going to help induce somebody returning to a unified sense of themselves. Whoa, could you like, hold on, when you say fragmentation of consciousness, what do you mean there? Well, John Eisman has this, I think, wonderful model of a certain level of emotional 
psychological wounding that takes place. He would say a type of wounding that takes place when somebody meets a impasse in their life, often very young. Before that impasse, they could be going along with a nice sense of themselves, a sense of feeling it's good to be me, a sense of adequacy. Mm. But when they meet a chronic impasse, then there's confusion, there's pain. In my opinion, a resentment can really be a factor there also. And the person, the the original, or he would say a, organic self, in order to cope with this impasse, will fragment itself into different states that will encapsulate the emotional wounding that's happening in that impossible situation that's too co- confusing and too painful. So a person will then, uh, and, and you know, part of the pain of that is feeling inadequate, feeling it's no longer good to be me, I'm not enough, I'm hurt. And then a person then has a fragmented consciousness instead of a unified consciousness. Are you saying they literally start to feel like they're different people, like different personalities or different states? Yeah, yeah, different states. In other words, an easy one to identify is sort of a victim state or a hurt state that I know for myself, I could remember you know, my late teens and early 20s often slipping into a state of feeling somehow like a victim. Mm. I'm hurt. I'm a victim. Now, in hindsight, I look back partly with, you know, I attended several trainings with John Eisman. I look back and see, oh, that was created when I was like five, six, seven years old. That, yes, I was hurt. But what happened was that in order to deal with that hurt, yes, I fragmented, I dissociated into other states of consciousness because I couldn't stay in that unified state. I see. So you're saying, ideally, though, the idea is wholeness and integration, I'm hearing, of the different states of your victim state, but also your accomplished one or your one that feels passionate. They, they all can fit together. But when you're young, they it's hard to understand how these different emotions or even well, can fit together. Is that what you're saying? My understanding is John Eisman would say that those states became identities and they lasted with us into adulthood but they're actually sort of dream states, hypnotic states that we slip into. Mm. They're not real. Their content's not real. Like if I, which I rarely do now, if I slip into some state of feeling like a victim, I'm just slipping into a state that got initiated, a dream state that got initiated years and years ago. And my, he would say, you know, my neurobiology is firing in that state. And it feels real because it's going from my mind to brain to body. But it's similar to a nightmare. You have a nightmare. And when you're in that nightmare, neurons are firing mind to brain to body. And you're having this nightmare. And when you're in the nightmare, it feels totally real. And then you wake up, you can actually feel it somatically as well as emotionally and visually, right? Mm -hmm. And it takes some time to shift out of that state and go, oh, that was just a bad dream. In other words, it's true that I had a bad dream, but the content was not real. So the content that I'm a victim is no longer real. It was real when I was five years old, but it's no longer real. And those states just get brought up by events or triggers in day-to-day life. That's right. They tend to be triggered. He talks about a victim's hurt state. He talks about a survivor state, which is always trying to lobby for the ideal and get back to the ideal. Mm -hmm. But it's also a narrow bandwidth of consciousness. It's a fragmented state. 
It's not at all coming from your wholeness, although it's rooted, all of these states are rooted in the, what he would call the organic mind. Mm. But um, it's a whole mind, he would talk about a whole mindset shift. He would say your organic mind never went away. Mm. It's always present. You can be in a victim state, but that organic mind is and self is still present. You have to learn to shift out of the dream state and back into an awareness of the whole self that is actually present. Wow. But you're not located in it. You're not aware of it. Wow. There's so many questions I'd love to ask you about, yeah. about this. We're going to be wrapping up pretty soon. I, I'm, we have a final question. Before I ask, I'm wondering, is there a question that you wish people would ask you? Well, you know, there's a lot of people out there I'm very inspired by and I've learned an awful lot from. And I mentioned some of those people. And I, I think I always hoped that people would ask me, well, what have you learned? And who did you learn it from? Mm. You know, I, I'm enthusiastic to speak about people like Ron Kurtz and John Eisman, Lisa Schwartz. I love Seth Godin, who you may be familiar with. Who else? I mentioned Lucy Johnson. There's a whole, there's more people like that. I like having conversations like this where people are asking me, what have you learned? How did you learn it? I like having that kind of conversation. I had a friend in college. He died of skin cancer some time ago. He was my best friend in college. And whenever he met, he'd ask me, what's new? What have you been learning? And I loved that. It was like he was interested in what I've been learning. And it also stimulated my interest in, well, what have you been learning? And I loved that kind of dialogue. It was, you know, I was with him for two years in college. Wow. And I'm always looking for those kind of conversations and don't get them that often. Wow. You Thank know? you. You're welcome. Thanks for always being, I'm reminded of like the beginner's mind that you're always studying and learning versus I'm done. Yeah. I've had a lot to learn <laughs> <laughs> and still do. Thank you. Uh, and I just want to qualify what I said. You know, I shared about different models and so on. That's just my limited understanding of those models, you know. I would say, yeah, if you want to learn, go to their websites and learn and study and take some trainings. If you're in the healing field, then search out for what's going to help you in your work. Mm. For somebody who um, was wanting to receive healing or receive therapy or counseling or somebody's wanting to learn, uh, where would you suggest that they go? The easiest site to find a therapist is a psychology today. Mm -hmm. um, but then I would also look look online and uh, you know do some searching. You might find a healer or a therapist that's not on psychology today that has something of what you need, you mm -hmm. know And I would say also, you should be able to tell if you know if you go, if you have a phone interview with somebody and they're, they're a therapist, counselor, healer, you should be able to know pretty quick, can this person help me? Mm. I don't think you should invest six months to a year working with somebody without any benefit. I would say if you don't experience some benefit pretty quickly, you know, there may be exceptions to that rule, but as a rule, I would say, look for somebody else. Mm. Thank you. McGowan, I just want to acknowledge you for taking the time and also for all of the study and research you've been doing and kind of like yeah. a, a passion for finding newer, better yeah. ways for people to really come into themselves and to yeah. heal. And I'm hearing like a broader care for the world too, for the whole world to heal. I appreciate it. Nice feedback for me. 
yeah, I guess I just want to say thank you for like the difference you've made for me. And um, I've loved going back and forth about the different ideas we've been sharing. I wish I had more time to talk and share about them, but I think it's contributed to what Wholehearted uh, does in the work that I'm doing. So I thank you. Oh, I'm glad. Thank you very much. It's good to spend yeah. some time together. Final question is, uh, what does being wholehearted mean to you? In line with what I shared, I believe we have a heart and we have a true self, an essential self. And I think being wholehearted is when we live from our heart and from that essential self. And I think there's a relationship, a give and take between the two. John Eisman, I think, would say the organic mind has more to do with truth and the heart has more to do with love. Mm. And that when you've got a nice give and take going on between the organic mind and the heart and you're grounded in this essential self, then you get a very fulfilling life and you're able to love and care and receive love and live in a, in a wholehearted way, you could say. Wow. Thank you. Well, thank you for taking the time. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you'd like to hear more things like this, check out 4-Minute Friday or Meditation Monday on the Wholehearted Podcast. Find out more about our heart-centered community on beingwholehearted.com. Have a great day.